I'm Athena, a sophomore student at Stanford University, and this is Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. Infodemic was a virtual conference that took place on August 26, 2021, in which leaders in public health, medicine, ethics, and social media discussed ways to mitigate the COVID-19 misinformation epidemic. This single-season podcast will feature all the Infodemic sessions as single episodes. The following is one of the conference presentations, entitled Vaccine Hesitancy. The panelists were Dr. Agnes Binawaho, Vice Chancellor and Co-Founder of the University of Global Health Equity in Rwanda, Dr. Ida Haptezian, Pfizer Chief Medical Officer and Stanford Professor of Medicine in Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and Dr. Gloria Geraldo, Consultant at Latino Health Access focusing on COVID-19 education and training. And the panel moderator is Dr. Seema Yasmin, Emmy Award-winning journalist, poet, author, and internal medicine physician at Stanford. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm really excited about our next panel. It segues really nicely from Dr. Larson's comments about vaccine confidence and vaccine hesitancy, because we have a truly global panel of three phenomenal women joining us to talk about this very topic. The person you are seeing on screen now is Dr. Gloria Geraldo. She's an international public health consultant focusing on Latin America and the Caribbean, and she currently serves as a consultant on COVID-19 vaccine education to Latino Health Access, which is based right here in California. Dr. Geraldo brings invaluable context to our roundtable discussion today because she's someone who's worked at the local, state, and international levels on projects ranging from pediatric injury prevention to chronic disease management. And for the last almost two decades, she's been dedicated to developing and managing public health programs with a real emphasis on Latinx, low income, and vulnerable populations. So very excited to have her here today. I will introduce the other two panelists who will hopefully be joining us in just a few minutes once Gloria and I get the conversation going. We will be joined in a few moments by Professor Agnes Binawaho, who's a physician and also holds a PhD. She's the Vice Chancellor and Co-Founder of the University of Global Health Equity in Kigali in Rwanda, which is an initiative of Partners in Health. She previously served as the Executive Secretary of Rwanda's National AIDS Control Mission, also as Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Health, and she served as Minister of Health for Rwanda. She's a Professor of Pediatrics at UGHE, a Senior Lecturer at Harvard Medical School, and an Adjunct Clinical Professor at Dartmouth. Last but not least, the other panelist who will be joining us is Dr. Aida Habtezion. She is the Pfizer Pharmaceuticals Chief Medical Officer, also Professor of Medicine in Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and Associate Dean of Academic Affairs right here at Stanford. But let's get the conversation going now with the three of us. First, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. So I actually wanted to start off by just asking you about the semantics of this discussion, because we had Dr. Heidi Larson, an anthropologist, talk about vaccine confidence and not so much vaccine hesitancy. And I've seen some physicians in the U.S., especially Black physicians, lean into a conversation more about vaccine confidence as an opportunity versus vaccine hesitancy as a challenge. So I just wanted to start off by kind of having this discussion about the language. And Gloria, if I can start with you, if you can perhaps talk to how you're framing these discussions within your community and and what are the opportunities and challenges that you're seeing? 
Thank you so much, Seaman. Thank you so much for the very generous uh, introduction and very honored to be part of this panel. Very great question to start with because we actually have really struggled understanding that vaccine hesitancy has been a term that has been around now maybe for a decade or so, much, much before COVID-19, but really is a concept that has many dimensions. It's not a static concept. It's not that a person, it's a condition where a person would be vaccine hesitant as a permanent condition. And it really needs to be unpacked. In our communities uh, here in Southern California, mostly immigrant, low-income communities, and that is really very much a, an academic term. So it really just became popular through media in the recent months. It's not some term that people use in their daily conversations. But when, when we, in our conversations with community health workers, with promotores de salud who are out there talking to lay people and community members, we really see that that hesitancy started to be used as this umbrella term for many of the issues that Dr. Maldonado was addressing earlier today, as well as Dr. Larson. Are people hesitant because there is a gap of understanding and information? Are there fears about adverse effects? And more importantly, in the community that I work with, are we talking about an issue of access? And is that not because the person is hesitant to obtain it, but is it because that the conditions around them are facilitating or not their ability to get the vaccine? So I hope that we discuss a little bit more about those today, but it's really unpacking this term and it has very nuanced meanings. And I actually um, appreciate the confidence take on it, but also addressing access. I, at some point early on, when there were great difficulties in accessing vaccine for communities of color, lower income communities, was there some hesitancy on the part of providers to get the mechanisms ready for people to access it? So um, we can discuss a little further and I'll leave it as that, but we can come back. Thank you so much, Gloria. And I appreciate you bringing up access because it's not an issue that's gone away. And access isn't just about physical access to a vaccine. It's about the very many barriers that might exist between a person and all of the steps in their decision making. Dr. Haptesin, if I can come to you, for example, I think it was a few days ago, maybe it was last week, that the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, blamed low vaccination uptake on Black Americans kind of completely ignorant of the issues around access, neglecting to understand what factors might be in play when somebody from a particular community, a Black person, a person of color, is grappling with that decision about how much they might trust the medical establishment, how much they might trust what's inside the vial and what's being told to them of government. Can you talk more about these issues and also just tell us more about the work that you're doing in this area? Thank you so much. Again, I want to thank you and the organizers for giving me this opportunity to participate in this important conference and panel. So going to the question in terms of addressing equity and trying to understand about the information, and as you mentioned, why we have a vaccine hesitancy, I think it's important to understand that there are multifactorial, there are multiple issues that have led perhaps to the reason why we have a low uptake. And I think it's not one size fits all. 
So it's very important to understand the root and the source of this misinformation. And I'd like to say a few things. And I think some of the misinformation are around our vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, is, first of all, to put it in the context, in the context of the disease, the COVID-19, as we heard from Dr. Maldonado, the impact of COVID-19 and why we need to be taking this vaccine. What does this common threat mean? And globally, as well as in U.S., we know that there have been more than 600 death and over 4.4 million deaths globally. And this has impacted especially also minority, marginalized communities, even to a greater proportion. So I think the other thing that we need to combat this misinformation is by giving the scientific and medical evidence and trying to bring that to light. How did the vaccine actually come to play? So there are, you know, as you mentioned, there might be uh, groups who would say this does not impact me or a diverse group were not involved in the development of the vaccine. There is also misinformation with regards to cutting corners because it was developed fast. There's concerns that maybe there is some cutting corners. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the vaccine development and the diversity involved in the clinical trials. So this mRNA technology, as we talk about it in terms of the vaccine makeup technology, has had actually years of studies in preclinical studies and data. And the partnership with BioNTech, in fact, goes back to 2018, where this development was towards flu vaccine or influenza. But this was extended to partner for the COVID-19 because of the pandemic. So I think we have to also be very thankful for those 44,000 and more courageous clinical trial volunteers and participants that enrolled in more than 150 clinical trial sites around the world. So it's not just in the United States, but also, you know, many places like Turkey, Brazil, Argentina, South Africa. So this is a global pandemic, and also it it was really important for Pfizer to put that effort to really involve and ensure diverse populations are included. And so I think when we come to diversity in the U.S. also, when we look at at clinical trials, we talk about census, for example. What is the proportion of African-Americans or Black Americans in the study, and what is it in the census? So in the clinical trials, there were 10%, and that's also overall when we look at U.S. population. Amongst Hispanics, there were 13% in the clinical trials. Sorry, in the uh, U.S. population, it's about 13%, but we had a 26%. And similarly, also important for Native American and Alaska Native that were also included in the trial. So these are very important information to know who was participating and how these trials were done which is very important, and I think, um, to this panel and also to contribute to vaccine confidence. Thank you so much, Dr. Habtezian. We're delighted that Dr. Binawah has been able to join us now. Thank you so much and a warm welcome to you. Agnes, I hope it's okay if I'm calling you all by your first names. I got very friendly and familiar very quickly. But Agnes, I'd like to ask you the same question as well regarding what challenges you're seeing, but particularly in Rwanda, in parts of Africa where you've been involved with programs around vaccine education and vaccine uptake. What particular opportunities and challenges are you facing? So the opportunity I can say in my country and generally Vaccine hesitancy is not a pressing challenge in many African countries. Let me tell you why. A study done by Africa CDC showed that 80% of the population in African countries is willing to get vaccinated. It is 65% in the US, 60% in France as of May 2021. So knowing that now, today, 
only 2% of the African population has got access to vaccine. Our problem is not vaccine hesitancy. Our problem is clearly vaccine access and also to have equity in access. So if we focus today as African activists on vaccine hesitancy, we are losing our energy. We better focus really on access to vaccine. I don't know if my argument is clear here. Oh, no, that's crystal clear. And I think you're re-emphasizing a point that's been made, Agnes, about how nothing to do with this pandemic is equal from mortality and morbidity rates, from who's most susceptible to infection, but then also the inequitable access to vaccine. So it just shows how context is so important and how nuanced this conversation has to be given which communities we're talking about, um, which parts of the world we're talking about. So you're having a conversation about access. We're having similar conversations for some communities here in the US, but globally, we're also dealing with a situation where Israel, the UK, the US is on track or already doling out third shots, booster shots, while so much of the world has still not received a first shot. Gloria, I wonder if I can come to you and ask about how we have conversations about these ethical challenges, given that this is such an uneven playing field to begin with. Absolutely. And I think that in communities in the United States also that are traditionally, unfortunately, have been marginalized, there are also a very high number of immigrant communities. And so they're very conscious because they have their families and relatives and very close people that are experiencing the very same type of situations that Dr. Binagawa is mentioning, where their family members, their parents, their grandparents in Latin America, for example, have not been able to receive the vaccine or are in very long waiting periods to arrive to that age group where they will be able to receive it. So there is a sense of understanding that obviously that we have been affected very differently in very blatant ways in the communities here where sometimes it's only a 15 mile difference. So this is also another context where industrialized and developed countries, there's no equity either, right? We have just a 15 mile difference where People have continuous access to the medical system. And that is one of the factors that also has underlied some of this uh, mistrust that we were talking about before. If you don't have a, a regular doctor, it's obvious and it is normal to have fear of the unknown, to have been a little bit worried about this brand new vaccine. And, but you didn't have a source, a trusted source in the medical field to resort to, to ask questions. So those long-lasting disparities that have been mentioned this morning as well are playing out every day and continue to fuel those issues of equity. They had to do with, since the very beginning, equity in the distribution of testing sites, equity in the distribution of the vaccines themselves. And now we have to see what the mechanisms will be in the equity. If we're moving towards, as it seems, a third shot, how to continue setting effective mechanisms in the communities that haven't received it. I mean, it took a lot of organizing, grassroots organizing, to be able to level the field a little bit. And it's not completely leveled, as we know. Our vaccination rates are different in different communities. 
Yeah, no, thank you so much for, for clarifying that. And I think it's important to raise that issue. Yes, we're having a roundtable about vaccine hesitancy. But as Agnes has said, and as you're saying as well, Gloria, it's not just about hesitancy, it's about very basic access to the vaccine. Uh, one of the things that I study is inequitable access to accurate information about health and science. And what we've discovered in a mapping project we're doing at Stanford is that in the same way that some communities are more vulnerable to disease itself, there are some communities who are more vulnerable to being targeted by disinformation campaigns and are more susceptible to believing misinformation. So a question for you, Ida, because you really nicely pointed out some of the misinformation and disinformation that spread about mRNA vaccines in particular, and you countered that with some of the information that helps us contextualize why this misinformation arises in the first place. But my question for you, because I've been so critical of public health for many years before the pandemic, but throughout the pandemic too, that in public health, we have often neglected or we've relegated communication of public health communication of health and science to very far down the list compared to the research, the basic science, right? And one of my frustrations as we were fast-tracking development of a vaccine was, you know, this is great. We're going to probably develop a vaccine in record time. Many of us in public health had a lot of confidence in that. But my frustration was, well, is there a concurrent vaccine communication strategy? Because we could have predicted, right, some of the, the health hoaxes and the medical myths and the rumors that are spreading now. So since I've been critical of public health, I want to be critical of industry too. And I wonder if you can take us behind the scenes, Ida, to help us understand whether those conversations about vaccine communication were happening at Pfizer, and perhaps if not, then the why not and what might be different in the future. Yeah, I think this is a, also an important question to address. I can say what we have been doing at Pfizer, and I think it's very important, as you mentioned, to get the right message across. So separating the message from the messenger. And I think we've worked hard to be as transparent as possible in the development, safety and efficacy of our vaccine. And we're continuing to do that through various channels. So for example, the data that was published, not only presented to regulators, of course, which is important for us to do, was also to make it publicly available as soon as possible. And this is why it was available at the same time as it was available almost to regulators. So this was another important. And there is also channels that we use, for example, in our Pfizer website. There is also, uh, for example, in my organization, global medical information that anyone can call or access the website in many countries where we are committed really to try to address equity in information, because it's also important to really give the scientific and medical evidence of so that way we can combat this hesitancy. We also believe public education in collaborating with patient organization, medical and public health institutions is critical. And this is globally. And we've had many interactions, including in the clinical trials, because that was unprecedented, for example, to include, you know, minority groups, because that meant to go out and also partner with trusted civil societies and NGO organizations like the NAACP, the National Black Nurses Association, the National Hispanic Medical Association, because in order to have a culturally sensitive way also, whether it's a consent or whether it's how we do our uh, to remove barriers in our enrollment, like language, for example, and uh, translation and whatever the materials were necessary. 
So it was really a heroic effort, you know, to really be including all those sites to partner really to go in depth, work with investigators in such an unprecedented time. So this was also important in terms of having access an equitable manner to the clinical trials and information. Thank you. And Agnes, as you're hearing more of this discussion, you're setting the scene for us that in your part of the world at the moment, access remains the most critical issue. Do you, however, think about vaccine hesitancy as a challenge that could arise in the future that will arise? And if so, I wonder what efforts or plans are being made by yourself and your teams to perhaps counter that future challenge. This is an important question. And despite what my fellow colleagues are saying in this panel, I repeat, vaccine hesitancy is not a problem now in Africa. And in Rwanda, it's even more deep. In 2019, before COVID, there was a study done by Wellcome Trust and Gallup Institute in the U.S. showing that my country is the country where the population has the highest trust on the health system as it is. And why is it? They did a study, they did triangulate, and when you have a trust in your government, in your judiciary system, you have trust in science. You have trust in unknown Uh, medical tools that they are presenting to you to save you for a recent, very new and unknown uh, disease. And I want to say that in the U.S., what happened? There is a historical lack of trust by some communities because they have been mistreated by science, mistreated by the politician, mistreated by the judiciary system, and they are still mistreated by the, the security system. So they don't trust and they don't come to seek services. And for this, I want to remind, because it's in the subconscious of each and every Black person in your country, the the Tuskegee syphilis trial, where people were unethically exploiting a minority, knowing that they were killing them, and the scientists passed through this through the judiciary system without any accountability. And it was known. They will have never done that to white people. So... This explains why people, because of the economic situation, are more vulnerable. And because also there is so many studies showing and demonstrating that black people in the U.S. are not treated the same way than white people in health system. So what do you want to have? You have no trust. And the last three years, it has been shown that trust is one of the biggest social determinants of health. I will trust you for things I don't know if I know you are a good person for me. And this, the U.S. have lost it because of political activities where people have lied for their own things, where people have been lost because they have been lied without, again, accountability. So rebuild trust, but not in the middle of the crisis, on a day-to-day basis, be a more equal society. Don't believe you bring equal distribution of vaccine or opportunities or of health system when there is no equality elsewhere. Yeah, and I appreciate you talking about the historical context, but also stating very clearly that that medical mistreatment of Black Americans, especially, but also Indigenous and other minoritized groups continues. We have so many studies showing how Black patients' pain is underbelieved, undertreated, and that medical mismanagement and abuse continues. Agnes, you talk about not trying to perhaps build trust in the middle of a crisis because it's extremely hard then. But I want to ask you, Gloria, a question about this because we've talked about government, we've talked about public health agencies, we've talked about industry. 
but you also work with promotoras and other kinds of community health workers who really are trying to be that bridge, really are trying to build trust. So can you tell us more about those workers' efforts around vaccine education and uptake? Absolutely. Within a crisis, there are so many unpredictable factors. However, community-based organizations that have been there, in the case of Latino health access here in Southern California, we've been there for 30 years. So that trust, that process of building that trust has been built day to day. The other aspect is that we're not newcomers or people external to the communities. These are people that live, study, work, play, pray in the very same context, in the very same churches, and the, you know they shop at the same little markets. So we had the ability, because of those deep roots in the community, to grow from about 80 staff, community health workers or promotores, to 150 during the pandemic. And these were the youth that came to help us to set up a call center. And what that was done in about um, less than a month, because when the lockdown began, our way of communicating with folks was face-to-face, was door-to-door. And during the pandemic, that couldn't be done. So where were people going to find trusted information We needed to set up a phone line that really became a lifeline for many people trying to find out where to get a test, how to isolate, could they get a voucher to a hotel. So it's also all the wraparound services. It's not not a medical crisis. It has all the implications that we've seen. People that lived in crowded housing needed to be isolated because they obviously could not stay in the same space. And that needed support. So the community health workers were the trusted agents that could help them, help them relocate to a hotel, help them with groceries because they couldn't go out and get the groceries and help them with all the other many necessities that arose. On the other hand, I do see an opportunity and it is an opportunity for our public health departments and our health authorities to restore trust. And I think some are taking that seriously and taking that to heart. Through the pressure of the community-based organizations from many different backgrounds, the Asian Pacific Islanders, from African Americans, from every group, parents, parents also as a group of concerned citizens, pressuring their health authorities through building health equity initiatives and, you know, having them walk the talk. Were they going to have vaccination site distributions in the communities that had the highest positivity? So we had to mobilize. We had to hold the authorities, the health authorities accountable. But it was up to the health authorities as well to respond positively. So there might be opportunities to continue along that road, to continue building that trust. If I may add, I think a very important point uh, in terms of that what are we doing? I, I, try, I would like to focus in terms of because all of us are need to partner, need to the com- to go to the communities. I think what Dr. Maldonado said is very important. One is that we serve the community. I would like to also note that there are certain things that Pfizer is doing. For example, the Pfizer Foundation that created new social determinants of health grant program, which funded 10 organizations working to advance health equity and reduce racial disparities and health outcomes amongst African-Americans, for example. And I also mentioned the grant and the partnership with the Black Nurses Association is a program that is called Rethink Program, which aims to increase vaccine confidence among the Black community 
And there was a, a million dollar award that was given by the Pfizer Foundation. So I think definitely there is a huge problem, but we need to start somewhere. And I think we need to really work with partnering with the communities that are really impacted. So I just would like to highlight that we all need to have a, a stake and we all need to be involved uh, and we have to find innovative way, just like how we came up with this vaccine is to really come with innovative ways also to solve these barriers. And also to do that on a day-to-day basis, not during the crisis. What Gloria is saying, they are there for 30 years, so they have built the trust that I'm talking to. It's not that is important. They are building on what they are doing on a day-to-day basis. What the lesson learned out of it is, starting now, you have to do, but never stop. It's definitely a process and we've talked about trust so many. Uh, we should have played a game where everyone drank a sip of water every time we talked about trust because it's so pivotal. And Ida, you answered my question before I even got a chance to ask it because Gloria was talking earlier about restoring trust. And I was thinking in terms of industry, pharmaceutical companies in particular, it may not even be restoring trust with publics. It might be building trust for the first time given long histories of exploitation, long histories of a perception or, you know, evidence about exploitative practices. And you were saying earlier about improvements, you know, gradual, but some improvements in terms of the diversity and inclusivity of clinical trials. I read a while back some groups of Black health activists and advocates saying those increases in diversity in some of the vaccine clinical trials, they believe only happened because they so strongly advocated to industry for that and actually took clinical trial participants or took stakeholders to industry. You did mention those uh, grants. And I wondered if you could talk more, though, about in the future, since we're saying, look, we're we're in a crisis, it's going to take time to get out of this, but thinking about a different future where there perhaps is more collaboration, even between industry, even between the promotores that Gloria is talking about, what do you think, dare I ask, might look different in the next pandemic, Ida? Hopefully we won't have a next pandemic, but we've learned a lot from this pandemic. And I think it's important that we apply these learning lessons to actually to day to day in terms of activities. And I think there is a lot that has been learned in terms of partnering. So one of the things, for example, we talked about access is even having the vaccine in such an unprecedented time. How do you even make vaccines to that extent that billions of, you know, because the population of the world would be waiting for these vaccines? So this also required partnership with other manufacturing, you know, other companies, for example, which, you know, this wasn't really something that was done very frequently. And then partnering with communities, as we talked about, this is very important. Now we know that this is how we should be. We should be serving the communities, going into the communities and partnering. And when it comes to really clinical trial initiatives, uh, diversity initiatives, this is also another one that we will continue to build beyond the pandemic for all our clinical trials to ensure that we have community partnership and that we are enriching that diversity. So there is many things that we are learning also from this pandemic in terms of how also we can develop safe and effective medicines and vaccines. There's a lot of lessons to be learned. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked also about access to the world is that how can industry partner to bring this equity into place? And I know that Pfizer is actively working with governments all around the world, as well as global partners to work to equitable access to the COVID-19 vaccine. 
you know, this is a start. This is initiation in terms of what we are doing. For example, the Pfizer and BioNTech collaboration is to supply multiple pathways, including direct supply, whether it's with the country governments, whether it's agreements with COVAX, whether it's agreement with the U.S. government to be supplied to low and middle income countries. And more recently as well was one of the things that Pfizer had with BioNTech is partnering also with a company in Cape Town in South Africa, BioVac. This is a company that Pfizer has worked in the past to since 2015, for example, to bring in a formulation for the pneumonia vaccine, Prevnar 13. So this is another one where there is now Pfizer and BioNTech are working to incorporate into vaccine supply chain that would be actually be in the Cape Town uh, facility. So to include that facility as a manufacturing and finishing doses. So these are certain things that, you know, there are many, of course, things in here. And I just would like to highlight that the equity started from the development, from the clinical trials early on, making sure that there is diversity, inclusion and equity, and then going on all the way. Uh, And we'll continue to do. and, And these are just some of the things that I just mentioned that are ongoing Mm-hmm. Yeah, small, gradual changes. Agnes, you talked earlier about there being multiple studies showing that in Rwanda, there is trust among the publics towards the government. So I wondered if you could tell us how the public is perceiving the lack of access to vaccine, or whether that impacts how the public trusts or doesn't trust the government. Is it being framed as a government failure? No, it has been framed really and understood as a high countries mismanagement. Uh, first of all, there was COVAX, you know, and we disseminate the information, etc. 20% of the people at risk, etc. And after that, all the countries that are rich got more, some, some of them 600 times more than what they need without uh, ordering that. With knowing 1 billion of doses in high-income countries that will be stocked, when other countries are dying. So this is known. So this is a global solidarity and a Western supremacy problem by who don't want to sharing something that will bounce back to them anyway. Because if we have variants, it's because we didn't manage to stop the pandemic. And we didn't stop the pandemic because we didn't apply what the scientific world have said. COVAX was a very good thing. Stop the pandemic all over by vaccinating the people at risk and the people who give the services. We missed it. So now we have variants that bounce back and come back to kill the people in high-income countries. Unfortunately, Aida, there will be other pandemic. There is a pandemic every 10 years. We know that. Some are well-managed. This one is totally mismanaged. But there will be a pandemic regularly on, in our life, and we need to be ready to not do the same issues. That means have it's a pandemic, it's a global problem, a global solution. Let the scientific lead the way and distribute the vaccine according to the priority list to stop the pandemic. I wanted to ask you, Agnes, what you can tell us about what the future weeks, months, next year might look like in Rwanda and neighboring countries in terms of vaccine access. What do you know about that? So in Rwanda, we are quite a little bit lucky because we are well organized about distributing the vaccine, following the list as it is. And because of the trust the people have, you should see the line now. We have started vaccinated in high hotspot young people above 18. 
it's so touching to see how people are waiting all the day to be vaccinated, but massively. So it depends of what the world will be able to produce because there is a lack of vaccine that we doesn't have to say something. Uh, Pfizer, you do your best. And I up, we upload the fact that you have partnered with a team in South Africa to create vaccine and others. We need more place in the world to produce the vaccine we need today. And we are hopeful because in Rwanda, people are very disciplined. It's a culture where we will put the mask, even vaccinated, just to protect the people who are not, because we still don't know how we are we can contaminate somebody even when we are vaccinated. Uh, there is a high solidarity also in the in the community because by the all the poor people uh, make sure that they are not homeless, they have food on the table, etc. And all the country support the the economic rebirth. And this is the biggest problem because in the time to come, the economic damage created by the pandemic, we are we don't know how big it is. And how is going to be bounced back to the health gain we had in the previous years? If, and I have to say, if we don't have a variant that responds to none of the, va- the vaccine we have now, because the world has been so self-centered that they wanted to vaccinate their people first when creating the condition to have variants like the Delta. And one day, and we know as scientists that it will, it may come, we have a variant that responds to none of the vaccine we have now. So starting again. So the situation in Rwanda is totally linked with the fact that it's a pandemic and it's a global issue. Thank you so much for a riveting discussion so far. And I wonder if in the last few minutes I could ask each of you, and I'll start with you, Gloria, first, what the major challenges and opportunities you foresee in the next year um, and how you feel your organization will play a role in countering or taking advantage of some of those opportunities. So just a minute each. Absolutely. I think this has shown us, and I agree completely, historically, we know there will be more pandemics, but not only pandemics, there are emergencies, disasters, and communities that are vulnerable are always most vulnerable in those situations. Therefore, not only next year, but in the long run, we're also calling upon academics and scientists and governments how do you sustain the infrastructure, the local infrastructure? Because what this also has shown us so blatantly is that what happens at the local level, how is that managed uh, once the policies at macro levels are in place, but how is it deployed in the ground? So building the infrastructure, supporting community-based organizations, working with local governments and, and in a partnered way, need to be in place and addressing those other social determinants. We had obesity, diabetes, and many others. None of those are new and we're layering new challenges just on top of old challenges. Ada, I'll come to you next. Yes, absolutely, Seema. And I, I meant to say that we haven't seen a pandemic, you know, over 100 years. I wasn't talking about the pandemics in terms of emergencies and et cetera, but I do agree there will be more pandemics. And I think Pfizer colleagues have worked relentlessly to leverage decades of experience and expertise in developing and manufacturing, as well as partnering to provide this safe and effective vaccine for all. So I think I'm very proud of, uh, you know, the successes. And also, I think it's important to highlight I think because we are talking about vaccine hesitancies, that we continue to evaluate the benefit risk profile of this vaccine by following and monitoring not only our clinical trial participants, but also through additional studies, 
following reports from real-world experience as the risk and disease evolves over time because new variants do emerge and have shown us that they are emerging. So we can be ahead of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Let's be safe, protect not only ourselves, but also our loved ones and also our community. And I also urge that we consult our healthcare professionals and lean on the science and medical evidence. Thank you so much. And the last word to you, Agnes. So I want that Africa will be more self-reliant, meaning we have to start and we have learned that it's the first time we face this. Not stop being served when the rest of the world can give what is remaining. Start manufacturing what we need. That's one. And Africa have started and I hope it will be a wave. Second, we take the good experience all over the world. There are so many good experiences that are not enough told. Third, we know what where we are reaching here. I want a system, a global system, to make all those people who lie to the people, who make them die, to be accountable. They have killed more people than the terrorists. So we need international law to make people accountable when they lie by purpose, if they kill people. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining from your respective parts of the world. It's a real privilege and honor to hear your expertise and your experiences. And it's clear to me from this discussion that we can never be talking about vaccine hesitancy without talking about vaccine access and inequitable access here in parts of the U.S., and globally as well, especially in the global south. So thank you all. Thanks to our audience for your attention. I'll hand it over to Rachel now. Thanks for listening to this session of Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. We invite you to listen to the other important discussions and presentations that occurred at the conference, each available as individual episodes of this podcast. All 10 sessions are archived together. Just search Infodemic on the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, alium.com, or through summer 2022 on our website, stanfordinfodemic.org. A video recording of the entire conference is available on the Stanford Department of Emergency Medicine YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us.